If you all could turn to 3 John. I don't know when the last time we heard a sermon out of 3 John was. It's probably been a while. 3 John, verse 2 says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening, God, and as we've already stated clearly, Father, we need, um, we need you here. We need your presence to show up this evening, Father, and we need you to work on our hearts, God. We need you to work in situations in our lives. We need you to make things right, Father, in our hearts and in the hearts of those that we love, Father, and those that we care about, Father. We, we come before you because we've seen that you can affect change, Father, that you can do what we cannot do, Father. And so we ask you to come here and do the miraculous tonight, Father, that you would <clears throat> open your word, that you'd open blind eyes and open deaf ears, God, and soften hard hearts and um, awaken fires, Father, that you would turn hearts to you, Father, and hearts that are turned to you, Father, that you would reward richly, Father, and that you would bless and stoke fires, Father, that you would, that you would ignite passion, Father, that you would... And just move and do that special work that you do for your people, God, because this was all your plan, Father. Saving us and healing us and keeping us and bringing us into glory, Father. It was all your plan. It's in your heart to do it, Father. So I come before you and ask to do what's on your heart to do, Father, and to give us the strength and the willingness to surrender and to let you work in our lives, Father. I ask you to be with me now as I speak, Father, that you would remove... Um, myself from this, Father, and that your word could come forth in a way that makes sense and that changes all of our lives, myself included, Father, that it opens our eyes to things we haven't seen before, God, that softens our hearts in areas that are hard, Father, that, that awakens um, higher passions, Father, higher d- desires to serve you and see you as glorious and beautiful, Father. I, I pray all these things and I expect to see soon answers to all these prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Third John chapter 2, it says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. And in reading uh, different commentaries, they, several different commentaries agreed that that was a bad um, translation of, of the, the Greek words there. And the reason being is that the way it's worded, it says, Beloved, I wish above all things. So it says wish, and the word should be prayer. Um, and, and then it says above all things, and it makes it sound as though what... John wants more than anything else is for them to be, to be healthy. He, he, if you read it the way it says, it says, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. So <clears throat> one, one commentary translated it this way. It says, in every respect, I pray that it may go well with you as it does with your soul, that in your worldly prosperity, your comfort, and in your bodily health, that you may be prosperous as you are in your relationship with Jesus. I'm going to read that one more time. It says, In every respect, I pray that it may go well with you as it does with your soul, that in your worldly prosperity, your comfort, your bodily health, you may be as prosperous as you are in your relationship with Jesus. And I think, my, I think we've heard this verse a lot, and I've always heard it in a divine healing context, that God wants to heal your body. And I think that's valid, and it's a worthy point. And we, we could consider it for that. But I think another way to think about this is as a sort of a, a locating prayer. This is John praying for a man named Gaius. And Gaius is a faithful servant. He, he's done well. well. We'll get later to a, a biography of Gaius. But his prayer for Gaius is that, Gaius, I hope that your, your body that all your circumstances, that all your relationships prosper to the same extent that your soul is currently prospering. So what he's saying is, Gaius, I see that your soul is prospering. And so because your soul's prospering, what my prayer for you is that every facet of your life prospers to that same degree, to that same degree that your soul's prospering. And if that prayer was prayed over us tonight... And if it was immediately answered, I wonder where we would, what would change about us. Maybe some of us would be so healthy and robust that we would need two chairs. But maybe some of us would be weak and sickly. Maybe some of us wouldn't want that prayer prayed over us. Because if we were to physically prosper to the same extent that our soul is now prospering, we would show a a deficit. We would show a lack. 
And so this prayer seems as though it could be almost as dangerous as it is encouraging. Because it locates us where we're at. It locates what we can't hide about ourselves. It locates who we really are. Because if there's one thing that the human nature is good at doing, it's presenting what other people want to see. It's being what's expected. It's peer group. It's social pressure. But we hide our soul underneath a veneer of religious acts and social norms. And our soul is what it is. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to look and I want to pray and ask God that He would prosper our souls. So that our primary concern in life would not be securing for ourselves physical comforts, but rather that our primary concern would be to see our souls prosper. And in the overflow of that prosperity, everything else in our lives would do wonderful. That in the proper placement of Jesus Christ in our hearts, that our soul would so overflow with His goodness and so overflow with who He is that it couldn't be contained in just our spiritual, just in our soul. It would have to overflow to our bodies. It would have to overflow to our relationships so that in all things and in all ways we would prosper. And I think that's what John is driving at. So we ask ourselves the question, is how is my soul tonight? The thing is, I think that inherently in man, God has wired us in such a way that we know the answer to that like that. Your initial response to that question is probably the most accurate response. Give you five minutes and you'll start to squirm and shift and but I do and but I say. But the initial response that you do is your heart telling you exactly where your soul is and how your soul's doing. And we spend hours squirming away from that. But that is what God is asking us tonight is... How is your soul tonight? I think before we say an answer to how my soul is, I think we probably need to answer what exactly a soul is. And I got deep in theological weeds today, (laughs) and I am not going to go into the trichotomy, the dichotomy, and the monism. uh, But I do think there's something here. And I do think that the distinction that John draws attention to in this prayer Bringing a, bringing a distinction between your, your body and your soul, I think, is something that we should think about and we would do well to consider. So our question is, when John says, I pray that your soul prospers, what exactly is he talking about? How is he saying that I pray your soul prospers and, you, and then your body, which is then separated from your soul in this prayer, would prosper as a result? <clears throat> So, quite simply, I think the best thing that we can do for this is just to look at the word that John uses here. And it's it's psyche. And it just means the, the, the force that animates life. It's the force behind the life. So, if you can turn over to 1 John 3.16. This, when it says the word life twice in this verse, it's the same word as what John just used in, in 3 John. So in 1 John 3.16, it says, Hereby we perceive the love of God, because He laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Okay, so in this verse, he he uses the same word that he just used in 3 John to say, I I pray that this prospers. In this verse, it says that God laid down His life or His psyche, and, and we also should lay down our life or our psyche. So we can see from this one verse, is when he says soul, he just means you. It was, it was Christ who laid down his life. And now it's you who lay down your life. So we say that it's just, it's just the person. It's the person that is the soul. And if you can turn over to Ephesians 6, verse 6. This is the same word again, only this time in the King James is translated heart. It says, not with eye service. This is Ephesians 6, verse 6. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ... Doing the will of God from the heart. And that word is the same word as in 3 John. So if you do a, a word study, there's, there's Zoe, which is just life. It's just, if something's living and breathing, it has life. It has Zoe. And that is differentiated from Psyche, which is what here is the heart. And I think that, to me, Ephesians 6.6 6 was the best example of this because what he says here is 
that our bodies can do something that our soul is not in tune with. That's what he says, right? Because in verse 6, he says, Not with eye service as men pleasers. Don't just go through the actions of what you're supposed to do. But as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So it would be possible to say, do the will of God. But he adds, from the heart, which is your psyche. So when he says, Beloved, I wish above all things that your soul prospers. What I believe he's driving at is the motivating factor behind everything that you do. You know, Jesus hammered this home over and over again. Constantly he told the Pharisees and the Sadducees that you believe you have righteousness because you convince people that on the exterior you're righteous, but on the interior you're dead men's bones. And it was only the dead men's bones that Jesus saw. He didn't see the facade. He saw right through the facade. He said that you've heard it said that do not commit adultery, but I tell you that he who looks upon a woman to lust in his heart, he has already committed adultery. Jesus is always looking past the facade that we put up. He's looking into our soul. And that's what he sees when he sees us, is our soul. See, what we see when we look at each other is most of the time what we want each other to see. We tell each other what we want each other to know about ourselves, and we reveal about ourselves what we hope impresses other people. But when it comes to your relationship with God, when it comes to your eternal destiny, there is none of that. Jesus has never been thrown off your trail for one minute. There was not one time that he was like, oh man, I thought you were being really spiritual there. And now look at you. He saw your heart behind every action that you do. And that's your soul. That's the thing that John now prays for and says, I want your soul to prosper. Because, see, man can act anything. We can set up, there's thousands of systems of religion, and those things deal with the outward conformity, but they don't change the soul of a man. Only Christianity offers to change the soul of a man. You know, Muslims, they, they are against homosexuality, and they're against sleeping around and all this stuff, and yet over and over they're imams are caught in strip clubs and doing this. Why? Because the, you can't change the soul of a man. Because you can make rules, but you can't change the soul of a man. And so we say that <clears throat> when we come to the soul, the soul is the non-physical center of our emotions, our motivations, our desires, and spiritual awareness. It is from the soul or the heart that everything proceeds. I'll read that one more time. So the soul is the non-physical center. It's not physical. It's not our body. Of our emotions, our motivations, desires, and spiritual awareness. It is from the soul or the heart that everything that we do proceeds from. Everything that we do proceeds from the, our motivating factor. And our motivating factor is what our soul really is. Basically, I think you could define soul as everything that evolution can't explain. <laughs> they, can, they can come up with theories about men doing all this stuff, but they sure can't explain how we got this and how the, our heart convicts us when we hear God's word, and how we know that there's something beyond the grave. Evolution can't explain any of those things, because if that were possible to evolve, then other animal species would be evolving in the same way, in rational thought, and in matters of the heart. But they can't, because they don't have a soul. God has given us a soul. God has given us a psyche. God has given us the thing that allows us to communicate with God, to have actual relationship with God. So we say that the soul is a non-physical center of our emotions. It's where our motivations, our desires, our spiritual awareness comes from. It is from the soul or the heart that everything that we do comes from. You can turn over to Matthew 7. <clears throat> One of the great graces and what for many will be a final condemnation of the soul is that God has made the soul in such a way that it always reveals who we really are. That we might be able to hold down for a while what we don't want other people to know about us, but it always manages to pop up. Because the soul is irrepressible in its desires and in its inclinations. So in Matthew 7, for starting in verse 16, it says, You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits they shall know them. And I say it is the great grace of God that our souls operate in this way because there would be no other way for us to know who we really are. Because Jeremiah says that the heart is incredibly deceitful. Who can know it? And if you've tried for five minutes to live a Christian life, you know that the heart... It's incredibly deceitful. 
that we'll always make excuses for ourselves, that we'll always explain why there's things about what God wants us to do that we don't have to do. It will try to squirm, and it will try to make itself comfortable again. By their fruits you shall know them. So Jesus says, by those things that come naturally from inside of you, that is your fruit. And that fruit indicates a condition of the soil. It indicates a type of seed that's fermenting in your heart or your soul. And that fruit that comes out is indication of what's on the inside. And you can't keep it down. You can hear messages. You can, you can be convicted for periods of time. But eventually that will come back out. And that is grace. Because had, if our soul worked in any other way, we might stand before God ignorant of our own guilt. We might not realize that we needed a Savior. But because God has so wired us, we know that we need a Savior. We know that we need redemption. And that is the grace of God. He didn't have to do it that way. He gave us free choice. He could have just made that the limit of His grace to us. Free choice. Just figure it out. And if you make it, you make it. And if you don't, you don't. But He didn't. He worked so hard for our redemption. And He, he did everything that we need to obtain life and godliness. And you can turn over to Matthew 15. <clears throat> Starting in verse 7, it says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, These people draw nigh to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandment of men. And then he called the multitude and said, Hear and understand. It is not that which goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. So in religion, we always get stuck on the exterior because it's all we can see. So we assume that if we pull uh, an addict out and we, we clothe them in this way or we take a Native American Indian and we dress him up like a European, that we are somehow affecting change in the man, but we are not affecting change in his nature. And that nature that keeps coming out is God saying, you need grace, you need forgiveness, you need a, a change, you need conversion. That's God's work on your behalf, coming to you wherever you are and in whatever state you find yourself, saying, you know this isn't right. You know, the rich young ruler came to Jesus, and he had all the outward signs of conformity. He was rich, which was a sign of favor in the Hebrew culture. He was religious, and he could check all of his boxes. Because Jesus said, you know the law and the prophets, and he said, I've done all that from my youth. And what did Jesus say? Jesus went right to the soul of the man and said, one thing you lack and that one thing was too much because that one thing went right to the soul of the man. See, he was willing to give up things in order to look good and in order to, to, to say, assuage the guilt that was in his heart. Because see, the only reason he would have come to Jesus is because he knew something was wrong. That was God's grace drawing him, saying, I have the answer. So that he, he, he goes and he humiliates himself and comes to Jesus and says, what may I do that I might have life? And Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And that was one thing too far. And it walks away and it says that Jesus sorrowed. He was, he was a good guy. He was nice. He was kind. He got along with people. People respected him. And yet he wasn't going to come to Jesus if Jesus required that of him. Because his soul was still essentially about himself. And so we see that our soul is a non-physical center. It's the, it's the driving force behind what we do. And then we also see that our soul is our locator. That you can tell me whatever you want to tell me about how spiritual you are or how spiritual you aren't. But at the end of the day, between you and God, you know the condition of your heart. That you know whether your soul prospers or whether your soul is sickly. If you can turn to Matthew 16, so we see that the soul is the force behind what we do. We see that the soul locates a man. And on Matthew 16, verse 24, we see that the soul is the most valuable thing that we possess. Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life will lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in glory and the glory of His Father with His angels, and then shall reward every man according to His works. And you know, 
That word in verse 25 that says, Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. That word lose means to utterly destroy. It's not as though you set it down somewhere and forgot where it was and couldn't find your way back to it. You can't utterly destroy something unless you choose to utterly destroy something. Something will not utterly destroy itself. It says, Whosoever will utterly destroy his life shall find it. And that word life is the same word that... John used in 3 John when he said, your soul. It's the same word. So, so why? Why would God give us a soul, the motivating force behind what we are, and then say, to come to me, you must destroy it? Well, in theology, we, we, we talk about the fall. But whether or not you understand all that happened in the fall, it's as simple as this. No one can argue the fact that you are born with yourself ruling your heart. No one can argue that. Babies don't have to be taught it. Teenagers don't have to be taught it. Old people don't have to be taught it. We are born with ourself on the throne of our heart. We are the ultimate motivating factor for all of our actions, are we not? Is not everything that a baby does ultimately to appease themselves? And as we get older, we just figure out ways to manipulate the system and continue to make everything about ourselves, even while we put on acts of charity, and even while we act like we care about other people. How do we know this? Because as soon as someone crosses us, what do we do? We get rid of them, right? So what we were doing was never about them. It was always about us. That's what Jesus said when he said, don't even the worst people you can think of like their friends? I tell you to like your enemies. I tell you to love for them and care for them. That would take a tremendous change of heart, would it not? To, to move from a place where everything in all the world comes down to you. Are you happy, healthy, fed? And then go to Philippians 2 where it says, He regarded not himself. He took on the form of a slave and became a servant to all. That would require entire and complete destruction of what was previously the motivating factor of your heart. Because everything now that motivates you has to be entirely opposite of what was motivating you before. And that's what we call repentance. So we say that our soul is the gift that God has given us. It's our motivating factor. It's a, it's a locator. And we see that it's the most valuable thing. And I, I believe that in destroying the old man, in destroying our desires, in destroying everything that is about us, that God receives glory from those actions. Why? Because he just stated that the most valuable thing that we have is not our money. It's not our prestige. It's not our fame. It's not who other people think it's not, it, who we are, but it's our soul. It's who we really are. And so when we make the choice to remove ourselves from the thrones of our heart and put Jesus Christ on the throne of our heart, no matter the cost, he receives glory. Because it shows that we believe he is worthy to give up everything. We never found anyone that was worthy to give up ourself before. But now we see Jesus is worthy and so we give up ourselves. He empowers us to give up our old nature and put him on the throne of our hearts. And from that he receives glory. We give him our hearts. <clears throat> so because your soul is your most valuable possession choosing to voluntarily lose it is an act of worship. It's a recognition of worth. It's a recognition of His worth being greater than your worth. So we see that our soul is the motivating force behind who we are. We see that our soul always tells us exactly who we really are. And we see that our soul is the most valuable thing about us. And that Jesus tells us to guard your soul. To, to watch over your soul, to keep your soul, to work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. And why all the admonitions to guard, to guard your soul? If you can turn over to 2 Corinthians 6. Second <clears throat> Corinthians 6, it says, <clears throat> starting in verse 14, it says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? 
And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he who believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I think because we understand sometimes so little the cost of Jesus' sacrifice for us that we struggle to understand basic concepts like surrender. If we understood a glimpse of, of who Jesus was and how powerful He is and the fact that He created the universe and He holds the world in the palm of His hands and yet He's created me and you to house His Spirit, we would have no trouble finding the motivation to destroy our old man if we could but see Jesus correctly. The fact that we struggle so intensely to put Jesus on the throne of our hearts is because we are blind to the reality of who Jesus really is and what Jesus really worked on our behalf to make it so he could regain the throne of our life. Because in that, and with Adam and Eve, he was on the throne of their heart. He was the motivating factor behind their decisions. And then they chose something over God. And so we see in this principle that our soul is the throne room of our lives. It's the government building. It's downtown. It's, it's where all the decisions are made. It's where the constitution for our life is drafted up. And in our heart sits a throne. And then in Adam and Eve, Jesus was on that throne. He made the rules. He made the world. He put them in it. And he was there. And then they chose to put something else on the throne. They chose to put themselves they chose that they would rather be like God. They would rather take on powers that only God has than allow God to continue to rule over their life. And in so doing, they removed Him from the throne room of their heart and they began to make their own decisions. And the world that we see today is a result of that decision. But regardless of whether or not you understand and believe the story of Adam and Eve, I just ask you to look around. Listen to the news. Man has put himself on the throne of his heart and nothing but misery and destruction has happened ever since. And so God comes to us. He says, I've come that you may have life and life more abundantly. And we doubt that he's serious when he says that. Because see, if we didn't doubt that he was serious, we'd put him there immediately. It wouldn't be a conflict. But when we doubt that he means that seriously, we give him entrance to our throne where we still sit on the throne of our life and we still make the decisions and we decide how much God's allowed to tell us to do and where we'll draw the line like the rich young ruler. See, the rich young ruler sat on the throne of his own life. He made his own rules. You say, no, he followed the law, but he only followed the law as far as he wanted to follow the law. And when he didn't want to follow the law anymore, he changed and he said, I don't have to follow that because part of the law is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And you cannot love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind and love your money more than you love him. And that is what we all do when we choose anything over truth, when we choose anything over Jesus Christ. It only goes to show us that we remain, on the soul, we remain in the throne room of our life. And here's the gospel, guys, is that we were created to house God. We were created to be a temple. We were created so that God could dwell in us and with us and He could be our God and we could be His people. And we gave ourselves over to corruption and to death and we reaped the benefits of it. And one day by God's grace, God woke us up and said, isn't that death making you miserable? And we said, yes, it is. Please save us, Lord. And He came and He saved us and He removed us and He began a work in us that He said He would finish to make us back into the place where He dwells. And now the question is, how is your soul tonight, right now? Because we could all find some point in our life, if we're Christians, that we gave everything over to Jesus. We could all think of some point when we were willing, there was some seminar, there was some youth camp, there was some time that we were willing to, to let Jesus come in that throne room and actually sit on the throne and actually start to make decisions and tell us what to do. But then over time, we know that that throne gets usurped because we lose our passion. You can't tell me that Jesus Christ is on the throne of your heart and yet have no passion 
to see His glory, yet have no passion to know Him more. It can't work that way. Because God exists to make Himself known. And if He is on the throne of our heart, our greatest desire will be to see Him known more. To see Him glorified in us and through us, to His own glory, for His own namesake, any way He wants to. That's what happens when Jesus gets on the throne of His heart. What happened in the day of Pentecost was that Jesus got on the throne of Peter's heart and Peter preached a message that was inspired by the fact that he now was the temple of the living God. And that living God was coming out of him in power and in the Holy Ghost. And what happened was the early church allowed that sacrifice, that removal of themselves from the throne of their heart and they allowed God to sit on the throne of their heart and God moved through them because their souls were no longer their own but they'd been bought with a price. And they were willing to move, to give up, They were willing to see their wives and their husbands and their children slaughtered. They were willing to die for the simple reason that they had fully destroyed. They had lost their old life and they put Jesus on the throne of their new life. And Jesus now motivated every single decision that they were going to make. And because of that, God moved in powerful ways. Because He was on the throne of their life, they had no greater passion. They had nothing else that they would rather do than allow Jesus to live through them. Jesus was the best thing that they had going. That was the best thing that they could imagine doing. Was worshiping Jesus, was serving Jesus, was preaching about Jesus, was going all over the world and telling about Jesus. So I tell you that if our, if our throne room is silent and there's no passion for the heart of God, it's because God's not on the throne. You put God on the throne and I guarantee passion comes. I guarantee that a willingness to surrender comes. And that's what I say, that we can fool each other and we can put on faces, but we can't fool God because God looks into the throne room of our hearts and on our throne sits someone, either us or Him. And that's what God sees every time He looks at us, every time we pray, every time we come to church. He looks into the throne room of our heart and He sees exactly who sits on that throne. This should change everything about how we approach God. When we realize that there are no games to be played with God, that we are wasting our time to act spiritual or to say spiritual or to say Christian things or to fit into the crowd. You're just wasting your time, guys, because the only one that matters, the only one that ultimately stands before you on that final day and judges you based on who you really are is the one that sees your heart as you sit tonight. And everything else is going to go away. Your friends, your family relationships, this church, it's all going to disappear on that final day and you will just stand before your maker. And he'll say, I created you to house my spirit. I created you so that I could dwell in you and I could be your God and you could be my people. And in Ephesians 1, it says three times, to the, he did it for the praise of his glory. And that is a tremendous honor. It's not a duty. Another way we can tell who's on the throne of our heart is how do we approach spiritual things because Jesus said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light so if his burden seems heavy and his yoke seems burdensome then maybe we're on the throne of our hearts and that's what's chafing underneath the load maybe that's where our problem is coming from maybe it's not the gospel maybe it's not the Bible but maybe it's the fact that we are trying to live this out and yet deny the very fundamental fact that no man comes to the Father except by me and maybe therein lies our problem and it's not and the person you sit next to, and it's not in the world out there that doesn't understand, and it's not in all the arguments and the doubts, maybe the problem is that we haven't surrendered yet. That if we could look into the throne room of our hearts, we would see half-occupied thrones and quarter-occupied thrones in my, my own life so many times. And we have such a tendency to go to the place that we're doing really well and say, well, in this area, I gave it to Jesus, but our heart tells us the whole time, what about this? Just like Jesus was that rich young ruler, our heart says, what about this? Are you willing to do this? And when we say no, we, we sit firmly on the throne of our hearts and we make our decisions. And then when we reap the benefits of our decisions, we need to at least have the integrity to admit that it is not God's fault, but it is our fault for we have usurped His throne in our heart. So we say that our soul is the motivating force behind what we do. We say that our soul always locates us exactly where we're at. We say that our soul is the most valuable thing that God has given us. And we say that our soul is the throne room of our heart. And it's hard to picture a throne room, so just picture Oval Office. <laughs> That's what it is. It's where all your decisions are getting made. It's where, if, if we could put up here on a projector, 
the, motiva the real motivation behind why you came to church tonight, why you call yourself a Christian, why you do what you do. And maybe it's all good. Maybe your soul is prospering. Well, then praise the Lord and let his fire burn through you to encourage other people to do what you've done and put Jesus on the throne of your heart. And if, you're th if your throne room is occupied by yourself, this is God's grace. God's grace is revealed to men and that he allows them to see his righteousness compared to their righteousness and he allows them to see their shortcomings compared to his fullness and then he allows them to change. Because as long as we're alive, we can still change. We can still choose to put Jesus Christ either on the throne room for the first time or back in the throne room where he belongs. We still have that choice. And the thing about the, the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit comes into the throne of your heart by request. The Holy Spirit is not going to usurp the control of your heart. He's not going to sneak in one day when you're not looking and suddenly pop himself on the throne and you're going to be like, well, where'd that come from? Our flesh seeks to do that. Our self always wants to get back in there. The devil is always going to put a myriad of entertainments and things to distract us and to pull us away, to remove God from the throne of our heart. But the Holy Spirit comes as a still small whisper and says, aren't what I offer so much better than what you have? And if we never respond to that invitation, if we never respond to his still small whisper, then our heart remains in its state. And how many of us know that we shouldn't go and watch that, that we shouldn't go and do that, and yet we do it anyway? How many of us know that we should be doing something, and yet we don't, because it's hard, because it requires something of us? Maybe those things that we know, those things in the back of our mind that bug us when we go to do something or not do something, maybe that's the Holy Spirit asking if He can get on the throne of your heart. Maybe. Maybe those things that we know, those things that we've heard, those things that ring in our ears when we go to make a decision, maybe that's the Holy Spirit asking if He can get on the throne of our heart. Asking if we will allow Him ownership of our throne, control of our lives. So now we ask ourselves, <clears throat> so the soul is the motivating factor of our life. The soul locates us. <clears throat> Our soul is our most valuable possession, and our soul is our throne room. So what then is a prosperous soul? I think based on everything that we've just looked at, you could say a prosperous soul is a soul wherein Jesus is seen as the most valuable, the most beautiful, and the most worthy thing, where his commands are eagerly obeyed and his truth is revered, and everything else comes in a distant second. If we never set definitions to what we're saying, then we'll never receive what it is we say we want. What I mean by that, Mr. Hamilton used to always say, people are fine with you preaching, just don't define what you mean. Well, we can give, we can give people motivational speeches and we can say nice things, but if we don't define uh, how it is that such a thing or what it is that we're going for, if we personally for ourselves don't define what it is that I want, if we just notice a lack in our lives, but we don't ever bother to get in the Word and define what it is that would fulfill that lack, then we'll always have that lack in our life. God works by revelation, by showing us what the lack is in our life. If we never take the time to find out where the lack is in our life, if we never take time to say, this is what I want to be conformed into, then we can't ever get there. It's like a journey without a map. You can drive around a lot, but you're not going to get there. So what we want to get to is a prosperous soul so that our health and our body and our businesses and our relationships all prosper in the same way that our soul prospers. So we have to define what we mean when we say a prosperous soul. Because we could vaguely say a prosperous soul and we could all leave with our own idea of what a prosperous soul is, but if it's not based on God's word then we'll spend our life attempting to go towards a goal that we set for ourselves. And the lack will never go away because only the truth sets us free. And so I believe that the Word says that a prosperous soul is a soul wherein Jesus is seen as the most valuable, the most beautiful, and the most worthy thing, where His commands are eagerly obeyed and His truth is revered. 
and everything else in that person's life comes in a distant second. So if that is the definition of a prosperous soul, how is your soul tonight? Is it even possible for us to see something of Jesus that makes him so beautiful, that makes him so much what we desire, that we would be willing to give up everything that we currently have to get what it is that he's shown us that he is? Is that even possible? Is it possible for you, where you sit tonight, to so radically change from a non-passionate, disinterested, unplugged in, to someone who burns with fire, to someone who couldn't care less what everybody else in the room was doing, where everybody else was going. They just want to love Jesus. They just want to serve Jesus. They just want to see Jesus' glory abound to the nations outside and go. They just want to see Jesus' glory, no matter the cost. That's your best time of the day is communion with Jesus. Is it even possible? Or are we just up here just spinning fairy tales, just saying things that pop into our mind and reading biblical texts that have no bearing on our lives? Because if we're not careful, we'll go to church our whole lives and we'll never attain the standard that's set here, which says that Jesus is the most beautiful thing in the universe. He's the only thing that's good. Every good and perfect gift comes down from God. And we are to resemble Him. We are to be conformed into His image. And if we never realize that as a possibility for me personally, if we never realize that me personally, as a Christian, as a convert, as someone who has given over the throne room of his heart, can become like Jesus, we'll never set the goal to be like Jesus. We'll always set the goal to be like so-and-so. Or the goal just to be better than I was last year. And every year we'll end up the year with the same gnawing inside. Just like the rich young ruler, he walked away from Jesus with the same problem. Whatever it was that drove him to Jesus, he left Jesus with the same problem. And if we are making for ourselves definitions, if we're making for ourselves what we think we're going for, then we will constantly have what we have. We will only attain something greater when we go to God's Word and when we set for ourselves the standard that He set for us. Jesus didn't come down and die on the earth for us to waste our lives. He didn't suffer and pay the price. He didn't go through all the pain and agony He did. He did not take on human flesh and lower Himself to the place of a slave so that we could live lives like everybody else. You mean to tell me that the maker of the universe can come and inhabit a body, turn it into a temple, and I could stand it next to an unconverted person and we could tell no difference? You mean to tell me that that is Christianity? I mean to tell you that if this word is true, there should be such a drastic difference that all the world could tell who was the saint and who was the sinner. Why do I say that? Ephesians 1 says, I do all of this to the praise of my glory. The only way that happens is if such a change is affected in the people that are God's people, that all the other people and all the other religions on the earth can't duplicate it. They can't do it. Because this person has the almighty, infinitely powerful God dwelling in him, and this person does not. So maybe it's time that we start to align our lives with the impossible. Instead of aligning ourselves with what we think we can attain. Dads, we have, we have kids. We are setting for them this word prosper. It's, it's a journey term. It's, the other two times it's used is reference to have a good journey. To having a prosperous journey. To, to have a good trip on the way. So this, your soul prospers. is May your soul have a good journey. So where it's going, where's our soul going? To the ultimate promise that we will be like Jesus. And when we see him, we will be like he is. And we will live forever with him. That's our, that's our journey. What are we doing to set the course of our homes in such a way that our children see the glory of God is far more attractive than everything else? If we, if we just offer what the world offers, how are we any different? What are we exhibiting at home that looks different than what they will see everywhere else so that they want it? What is our heart in this? What is our responsibility to set a journey for our home, for our lives, that so, so attracts our children of all people to it, that they see the beauty of Christ lived out in us? And shouldn't this affect every decision we make? If God is the most glorious thing, then shouldn't every decision we make for our families and for our personal lives be one that makes God more glorious? Everything. 
Doesn't it say, whatever you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God? So God calls us to look like him. And we, and we throw that phrase around like it's, like it's you're going to look like me. Well, that would be no big thing. Get you a haircut and some khaki pants and you'd be set. But to look like God, to look like him who came and opened his scroll and said, this is the year of the Lord, to set captives free, to bind up the brokenhearted, to, to bring sight to the blind. To look like that? Really? We can look like that? That's what he said, isn't it? Isn't that what he said? Isn't that why Jesus came? So that we would have some kind of template? So that we would, we would be able to see a duplicate of the Father, a duplicate of what the Father wants us to experience and the life that he wants us to live. And so I have to ask us ourselves, how is our soul doing tonight? And how is our journey set? How have we set the direction of our journey in such a way that as our soul prospers, our journey prospers? That we get closer to being like God on the choices we make instead of farther away. Because there is no such thing as static in the life of a Christian. Any Christian that becomes static is being disobedient. What do you say? He says, we behold now dimly, but we see his face as though in a mirror, and we are changed from glory to glory. You find me a verse that says that a Christian stops at a certain point, or that a person ever attains. Paul, who lived a life that none of us could ever attain, says, I do not fight as one that's just shadow boxes. And I don't, I don't fight as one that's already finished. I press on. Until that day that I stop. Until the day that God calls me home. And that is the same for all of us. The day that we become static, we are disobedient. We, like the rich young ruler, stop doing whatever it is that God asks us to do. And we walk away like the rich young ruler. And until we go back to that point, whatever that point is where we stop, we cannot continue on with Jesus. Could that rich young ruler have come back on Monday and just tried a different angle? I think Jesus would have told him the same thing. You still lack that one thing. And it's the same way with us. Whatever is that thing that we aren't willing to get off the throne of our heart for, whatever it is that we hold on, I will let Jesus be on the throne of my heart, but that would mean this. Whatever that thing is, that's where we have stagnated. That is where we've stopped. And until we remove that thing, whatever it is, and it's different for all of us from the throne room of our heart, Jesus does not sit there. And until Jesus sits there, we aren't changed from glory to glory. We aren't changed into his image until the throne room of our heart only has him on the throne. And so we ask ourselves, how do I know that Jesus is on the throne room of my heart. Well, you just go back through everything we just did. What's the fruit of your life? What is your innermost motivation? What makes you do what you do? What makes you come to church? Is it so you can be a better person? Is it because it's the best thing for your kids? Is it because this is what your family's always done? What is your motivation behind doing it? Because what your motivation should be if Jesus Christ is on your th throne of your heart is for his glory. What your motivation should be is to please Jesus and bring him honor. What your motivation should be is to see more of Jesus. From glory to glory, being transformed by what we see into what we see. Looking in a mirror and seeing a little bit of Jesus, and as he reveals himself, we should be breathlessly awaiting the next revelation so that we become more like Jesus. And we should be eagerly obeying everything that we hear and not letting any word fall to the wayside and, and be lost on us. That's what we should be doing. That's what our heart should be. That's how we know that our heart is prospering. Our soul is prospering. And you guys, if it sounds impossible, if you sit there and say, I, I know my heart. I could never love Jesus as much as I love this hobby. Or I could never love Jesus so much that I would not do that. Or I could never love Jesus more than I love this. Let me tell you guys, that's what the gospel is for. That's the good news of the gospel. Is that you're absolutely right. You can't make Jesus the most precious thing that you possess. But if you surrender to Jesus... He will become the most precious thing that you have. So now, the last thing that we need to ask ourselves is this. How, how then can Christ be enthroned in my heart? If you can go back to 3 John. <clears throat> in 3 John, the letter starts off, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that that may pro prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. So <clears throat> this letter is written to a man named Gaius. He's obviously a very spiritual man. He obviously, John thinks very highly of him, as we'll see in these next couple verses. <clears throat> and if you go back to Acts, you find out that, if you remember, do you remember in Ephesus, there was this huge riot. 
And two guys get sucked into the crowd, and Paul wants to go in, and they hold him out, and they say, you can't go in there, it's too dangerous. Remember that right in Ephesus? Well, Gaius was one of the two guys that got pulled into the crowd in Ephesus. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I thank the Lord that I didn't baptize any of you except for Gaius and one other guy. So Gaius was baptized by Paul. And in the end of Romans, Paul says, I've written this book, and I'd like to thank my host, Gaius. So Gaius provided a place for Paul to live while... Paul wrote Romans. And in this book, if you jump down to verse 8, he says, um, let's see, verse, verse 3, it says, For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, as thou walkest in truth. And down to verse 9, it says, I wrote unto the church, but Diophanes, or Diophanes, who loveth to have preeminence among them, receives us not. So whoever Gaius is, he's an elder in the city, and there's another elder in the city. There's another high-ranking man. And John sends a letter to them. And the other elder won't receive them and won't take the letter. And Gaius stands up and takes the letter and receives the letter. And then he, he hosts the brethren that came. So we, we see in Gaius uh, someone who's been faithful to Christ for a long time. We see in Gaius an example. You know, I was just reading in Hebrews 6 last night where it says that follow those who through faith and patience inherit the kingdom of God. And in Gaius, I think we see someone who, through faith and patience, through a long period of time, believing God to be faithful, was prospering. His soul was prospering. So I want to ask us ourselves, so how can we be like Gaius? And I think that John gives us three things that were true about Gaius, that if we, in surrender... Not in self-effort, but in surrender. Seek to put into our lives to the glory of God that we also can see the throne of our heart restored to its correct place. So one thing about Gaius was in verse 3. It says, When the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. And this book is really short, but he says the word truth over and over and over. It's always about the truth with John. And he looked at Gaius and he said, Gaius, in you, the brethren came back and they said that the truth was in you. It wasn't that you knew the truth. It wasn't that you'd been around. They didn't come back and be like, man, you should hear the stories Gaius can tell us about Paul. You should hear what Gaius can say about that riot at Ephesus. That wasn't what they came back and said. They came back and said, the truth is in him. Now, guys, read the book of Proverbs. Truth does not insert itself into us on its own. The book of Proverbs is all about seeking truth. It's all about finding truth. See, in our culture today, we, we are told and believe a lie that the truth is inside of us. And if we can discover what it is inside of us that makes us happy, we will arrive at some sort of truth. And if that's true, then whatever truth is can happen spontaneously just on its own while we sleep. But if the truth is something outside of us, that can be outside of us and then inside of us, then there's a process that has to happen for that to happen. Am I right? Truth doesn't come just like that sandwich you put on the table in front of you. It doesn't go from in front of you to in you by accident. You have to, you have to do something. You have to take and put it in you. So Gaius was a man who didn't satisfy himself with being around high-power preachers without, with the adventure of life on the road and the fun times that he was having, and the, and the exciting things he probably saw. Gaius took that truth and he put it in him. And it became so much in him that it became what defined him. See, there's so many people that are Christians in name only, and what they know to be true about God has absolutely no bearing on what they live on a day-to-day -day life. Those are people that are around the truth, but they're not in the truth. People who can live the truth when no one's watching are people that are in the truth. And if you want to find out whether or not which type you are, just go and witness. Because when you can give no response for the hope that lies within you, the truth isn't in you yet. You can agree to all the right things. You can nod and assent at all the right times. But if you can't explain it, if you don't know why you believe what you believe, then the truth is not yet in you. And I believe the other way is go through hard times. Because what happens in hard times is that what's really in us comes out. We can't stuff it down any longer. That it gets revealed. 
And, and suddenly we find ourselves unwilling to hold on to things that we profess to hold. And I would tell you that you never hold, held them, you looked at them. Because if hard times can take away from you what you say is truth, then you never believed it to be actually truth anyway. You assented to it. But the only way that you know that you believe something is when it's tested. I can say that I can believe that I fly. But the only way that I can prove that I really believe that is to jump off a high object. And then what I say I believe is proven. And so in the same way, we can all say whatever we want to say about what we believe. But until we can explain it, until we know why we believe it, and until we can go through hard times and not lose it, we do not have it. So if we want to put Christ in the throne of our heart, we have to put truth in. We have to have truth in us. It's not enough to be around truth. It's not enough to be around the good crowd. It's not enough to, to, to know people that know things. It's not enough to have somebody on speed dial that you can call and they can answer your question. The truth has to get inside of you. And the only way the truth is going to get inside of you is by you voluntarily as an act of your will setting your face to know truth, to know what's true, to know if you really believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God and that everything in there that has everything that you need that pertains to life and godliness. Do you really believe that? Or do you just say you believe that? Because there's a dramatic difference between you saying that you believe that and you actually believing that. Because when it gets in you, then it begins to define your actions. When you actually believe that God's words are inerrant, then you begin to live a lifestyle that begins to mirror God's words because you believe that they're actually inerrant. You can say you believe they're inerrant, but until you line your life up with what it says, you don't actually believe that. Until you're willing to to put feet on what you say you believe, you haven't put it in you yet. So Gaius had the truth in him. And then the second thing is that he walked in truth. He says the truth is in him and he walks in truth. And this was, this was Gaius' testimony. I believe that it was these things, and one other thing that made John look at him and say, your soul is prospering, you're doing really well. Because he, he didn't just see the truth, he took it and he put it inside of him, and then he walked out what he said he believed. He put, he put feet on it. So he didn't, just to say, he didn't just say that I believe that God cares about the lost. He put feet on it. He didn't just say that I believe God wants us to love the brethren. He put feet on it. He didn't just say that I think that God can do this or do that. He put feet on it. He didn't say that God wants me to give up this or give up that. He did it. To have the truth and see the truth and even to hold and handle the truth is like reading scientific documents about a cure. You can read those documents all day long, but it's not going to do you any good. You have to get that cure and you have to put it in you. You have to take action if you want the cure to work. It'd be like a doctor setting the pill on the table beside you and saying, well, that'll cure what ails you. And you sitting there staring at it thinking, oh, I don't know, maybe it will, maybe it won't, and just kind of surround it, walking around it. You'll never know. You'll spend your whole life circling the pill on the table and you'll never know if it actually does what it promises to do. And that's the same thing that happens with us when we just see truth. And we don't actually, we're not actually going to do it. We're not actually going to apply it to our lives. We're not actually going to find out if it's possible for us to have such a burning relationship with Jesus Christ that literally everything else takes second place. We're not willing to take the steps to do what it would cost. We're not willing to find out if that works. And the last thing, if you can go down to verse... <clears throat> And John says in verse 4, it says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And beloved, he's talking to Gaius, thou does faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. And the word there that I want to key on is thou doest faithfully. That's the same word that Jesus used when he said, well done, thou good and thou faithful servant. Because everybody can do something one time. Everybody can go to a youth camp or a seminar or hear a good message and do something one time. But consistency, that's a lot harder. To do a thing when there's no apparent reward for doing it, when there's no one patting you on the back for doing it, consistency is a lot harder. How many of our lives, I remember years and years ago at a seminar, hearing Mr. Hamilton say, our, our lives shouldn't be like a roller coaster, up and down and up and down. And, and I just, just got serious about putting Jesus on the throne of my life. And I was thinking, I, I don't know how it could be any other way. All I know is roller coaster. But there is a decision that we can make. 
There's a work of God on our behalf. There's a strength He gives us. But there is a decision that we can make to stop messing around. If we really think this Bible is real, then we can choose to start living like it's real. We can choose to be consistent in our life. We can choose that. We can choose to say no to inconsistency. Whatever it is that God tells us to do, whether it's to walk away from something or walk towards something, we can choose to say no to starting and then stopping, right? We can choose to, to press through. We can choose to come to a Thursday night prayer meeting when it's quiet. We can choose to do what God tells us to do because we believe God's told us to do it and for no other reason. That's faithfulness. That's well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because what do you think the guy with his one talent did? I, he probably went and tried to do something with his one talent. And he was afraid he was going to mess up. So he, he did a little bit and he run back and he just hit it. Just be safer over here. And isn't that where inconsistency drives us? We end up just trying to hold on what we think we have and hide it over here so that nothing happens to that little thing that we have and we aren't going to press on to anything more. We aren't going to, we aren't going to do what it takes. We aren't going to walk away from those things that we shouldn't be watching because we know, we think in the back of our minds, I can't do it, I'm not going to do it. We won't stop listening to what we're listening to. We won't start using, stop using the words we're using. We won't take Jesus at his word because we're afraid we're going to do it and mess up. Well, there is a decision that you can make to follow Jesus and not turn back. We can decide to follow Jesus and not look to the left or the right. And yes, absolutely, we need God's grace to do that, but there is a hand that we put to the plow. Jesus didn't take his disciples and say, here's the plow, I'm gluing your hands to it, now go, and you can't let go. That's not what he said. He said, here's the plow, will you, will you use it? And he said, don't turn back. The soul that turns back, my soul has no pleasure in. So he, he gave them an option. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, and Jesus didn't say, I'm going to save you, and I'm going to get you there. Jesus, prevailing grace, and Jesus checks and does the preservance of the saints. Absolutely. But in all of this, we have a decision to make. Will we follow Jesus consistently? Will we be faithful to what we say we believe? Will we be faithful to the truth that we know? Will we consistently seek for truth? Will we faithfully put a knowledge of God as a number one priority in our life? Because I don't care how long we've sat where we've sat or how many times we've read through our Bible in a year, there is more to know about God. There is more that we have not yet seen about the person of Jesus Christ. Whether we got saved yesterday or 50 years ago, there is more that we have not yet seen about Jesus Christ. Paul, one of the most anointed theologians of all times, writing Romans, gets towards the end of the book, and he says, Oh, the riches and the depths and the unsearchable wonders of God's wisdom. So you mean to tell me that you've already mined past Paul? That you've already went past the third heavens? That you've already seen all that there is to know of God? Impossible. When you get to heaven, you won't know all that there is to know about God. That's how immense that God is. But we can set that as a priority in our life, that I will consistently make a knowledge of God one of my priorities. I will consistently press in to, to know more about God, not so that I can attain knowledge, not so that I can win arguments, but so that I can be transformed by the, what I see. So that I can look at God and say, oh, you do that? I want to do that. Oh, you're like that? I want to be like that. And every time we say, I want to be like that, it's going to cost you. It's going to hurt. Why? Because the thing that has given you all the comfort these years... Yourself is dying. You cannot choose to follow Jesus and do it painlessly. You choose to follow Jesus in the pain. In the death and in the sacrifice of putting yourself to death to see Jesus come out through you. Out of the knowledge of who he is is what I want above everything else. <clears throat> if you can turn back to Psalms 51, I'd like to close. <clears throat> Jay, if you're out in the lobby, could you come in? I'd like to sing this song before we go home tonight. Um, in a minute, not just right now, but I want... I want us to stand together as a church and, and to read this psalm together as a prayer. That God would literally, not in some figured or, or ambiguous sense, but literally come down to Shelbyville Christian Assembly as a unit and to us as individuals and be enthroned on the throne of our hearts to such a degree 
that he prospers our souls. That when we get together, it's not a bunch of detriment to each other's souls, but that it's a prospering to each other's souls. That we would see God do a work that only God can do to transform hearts and minds and desires into something that he would bless and honor. So if everybody can stand up and if the musicians can come up, I want to start in Psalms 51 and read to verse 12. And I don't want to just read the text. I want to pray it. I want this to be your confession of your heart. If you want to see Jesus enthroned on your heart, then just ask him as we read this prayer. It was a prayer for David. It can be a prayer for us. And then we can sing it. But read it with me. Psalms 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou might be justified when thou speakest and might be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin and my mother conceived me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear the joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of their salvation. And uphold me with thy free spirit. Let it be.